Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of Jesus, your son. We are grateful that we can be here. This is your place. We thank you that your spirit is present. We pray, Lord, tonight that you would do a work, a great work. And the work we ask that you would do is that you'd speak to us and move our hearts. However we need to be moved, however our, our lives need to be adjusted, however deep our surrender must be, Lord, would you fill us? Would you move upon us? I would never ask that you would send your spirit to be here because your spirit was here before you got here, but we're asking that while your spirit is here, we would be here, and that you'd move, that you'd be heard. We didn't come here tonight to hear a man. We came here tonight so that we might encounter divinity. So to that end, we know there is power in your word. We pray that the word made flesh, Jesus, would be seen and heard. Draw us to yourself through him, we pray and ask you. In Jesus' name, please would you say with me, amen and amen. It was said that December the 7th, 1941, was a day that would live forever in what? That's right, it was said by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was on that day that 350 aircraft of the Empire of Japan attacked attacked what was then the territory of Hawaii, attacking the United States. All eight U.S. Navy battleships on Battleship Row and Pearl Harbor were damaged. Four of them were sunk. Three of them were refloated and sent back into service during World War II. Still other ships were sunk. 188 American aircraft were completely destroyed. 1,200 Americans were wounded and 2,400 were killed. Japan was looking to control the Pacific. Japan had invaded China. Japan was looking to sweep down all the way to Australia, which had been attacked several times, and New Zealand, which, while never attacked, uh, hosted, hosted, without having invited, hosted various U.S. ships or submarines in its waters. What tends to be forgotten, and from an American's perspective, this is not surprising, is that hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the American-occupied Philippines were attacked. At that time, the Philippines was essentially a colony of the United States. The United States had defeated Spain in the Spanish-American War and then turned around and paid $20 million as compensation for taking the Philippines. It was really a pretty good deal. But when Japan attacked the Philippines, pretty much everything changed. Up until that time, the Philippines had been a pretty good place to be. If you were an American serviceman, it was a good place to be. It was a good place to live. It was not for quite some time considered to be in imminent danger. But of course, everything changed. And even though... America had a presence, a military presence there. It was not enough to counter what was a tremendous Japanese onslaught. And so on December the 24th, General MacArthur moved his military command post to Corregidor, essentially a rock, a 2.12 square mile rock out there in Manila Bay, a fortress, really, 
It was referred to by Americans as the Gibraltar of the East or simply as The Rock. I've been to The Rock, to Corregidor. We went there and we filmed, and it is written television program there. Quite a place. It's different to what it was in 1941, but the same. Different in as much as it's now covered in vegetation, trees, forest, if you like. Different in as much as the buildings which stood there, pristine in 1940 or so, are now destroyed. The mile-long barracks, which was nowhere near a mile long, but still pretty long. It's a, a shell, a bombed-out shell. Other buildings the same. You can walk around there to um, artillery posts, and you'll find holes in the ground, concrete that's been blown apart. You'll find... Uh, scars from bombs and mortars that have fallen. It's still the same rock, much the same rock. It's very peaceful now, but those years ago it was certainly not. On the island of Corregidor is a system of tunnels known as the Malinta Tunnels, the Malinta Tunnels. They burrow into a hill on Corregidor and go back 500 or so feet, a network of tunnels. And the Japanese bombed it like crazy. Interestingly enough, after the United States military evacuated, after Japan moved in, and when America came back to oust the Japanese, it was bombed again. It's a wonder there's anything of Corregidor left. It was bombed with more ferocity than any other place during World War II, with the exception of one other place, and I think that might have been Gibraltar. So MacArthur had to get out of there. It was clear that the U.S. forces weren't going to be able to hold the Philippines. So he and uh, a little circle of his closest advisors and family got on a B-17 and left the Philippines and flew to Darwin in Australia's Northern Territory. From there, he took a train, changed trains, because in Australia at the time, the railway didn't have one consistent gauge. It was this wide in one place and this wide in another. So MacArthur changed trains in a little place about 140 miles or so north and a little bit east of Adelaide in South Australia, a little town called Tarawi, which I read appears today on most maps. So it's just a little place, small population now, not the sort of place you'd really ever want to go, except if you went to Tarawi and you went to the remnants of the old railway station, you'd find a low-slung brick wall, and on that wall you'd find a plaque. And that plaque today commemorates the speech, the brief speech or statement MacArthur gave while he was there. They've referred to it as the speech heard around the world. As MacArthur was changing trains, he had a little time to wait, and a little scrum of media people approached him, putting, as they do, microphones in front of his face, and they asked him for some kind of statement. And General MacArthur spoke to the media as the war raged back in the Philippines, and he said this. He said, the President of the United States ordered me to break through the Japanese lines and proceed from Corregidor to Australia for the purpose, as I understand it, of organizing an American offensive against Japan, the primary purpose of which is the relief of the Philippines. He said, I came through and 
I shall return. I came through, and I shall return. The Philippines suffered immensely under that Japanese occupation. Terrible things happened during warfare. War has a tendency to bring out the very best in some and the very worst in others. Thousands of servicemen, both American and Filipino, were killed. Many thousands of civilians perished. Manila was essentially eradicated or erased. American troops retreated to the Bataan Peninsula. And from there, they were marched to what is known today as Camp O'Donnell on what is referred to today as the March of Death. It's not called the March of Death simply because people died it's referred to as the March of Death largely because of how people died. Death was administered randomly. It was administered injudiciously. It was administered cruelly, mercilessly to make any sense. You stopped because you had diarrhea, you were killed. You stopped because you couldn't go on any longer. You were killed. You were stopped because you wanted water. You were killed. You didn't stop. You might have been killed anyway just because your captors felt like they had to do something to relieve their boredom. The cruelty was almost impossible to believe. But there was something that gave them hope. The American, the Filipino servicemen, the Filipino civilians, there was something that gave them hope. You see, MacArthur had left. Their hope did not leave with MacArthur because MacArthur stood up one day and he faced the media and he said, the president told me to get out. The president told me to organize a counteroffensive. The president told me to do that and so I'm doing that. He said, I got out of there. I came through and he said, I shall return. MacArthur's promise was known and understood by the people waiting there for a deliverer. They heard the report. He said, I came through and I shall return. And so they chose to believe MacArthur. They waited. They suffered. They waited. They anguished. They waited. But what fueled their hopes and their dreams were the words of MacArthur. He said, I shall return. You know the parallels are obvious. Jesus stood here on this earth in the year 31 AD and he spoke in a battle-scarred, war-ravaged world when he said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Jesus said, believe also in me. In my Father's house are what? If it were not so, he wouldn't have told you. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And this is where it gets really good. He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself so that where I am, Jesus said, there you may be also. That's a promise. I shall return. Jesus said, I will come again for the purpose of receiving you to myself. He said, we will be together forever. 
Have you thought lately about that promise? And it is a promise. I am coming back to get you. I will gather you up and take you where? Home. One day, one day soon, we are going home. What do you say tonight? And thank God we're going home. What does that promise mean to you? It ought to mean something to you because that promise is written on your rebirth certificate. We wait in anticipation, in joyful hope for what we believe is the soon return of Jesus. When Jesus comes back, well, what? Maybe you think there won't be so much competing for my time. The pressures of this world won't be crowding in on me. I'll be able to do what matters most, and maybe I'll have the wisdom to know what matters most. Maybe you think, finally, family and friends. You know, this is a big world in many ways. Family grows, and family spreads, and then we look forward to Thanksgiving, and we look forward to Christmas, and we look forward to a moment here and a, a day and a weekend there. Oh, man, I'm glad, and I think you are as well, that one day Jesus is going to come back. And you will have all the time you need and want for the people that matter most to you. Won't that be good? When Jesus comes back, there won't be any more sin. The struggle will be over. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more injustice. There'll be no more hardship. There'll be none of that. Jesus will come back. No more illness. Christ is going to return. Uh, the words of that great old hymn say, Oh, brother, be faithful. Soon what? Soon Jesus will come, for whom we have waited so long. He's coming back, and thank God. Tonight, I wonder if you wouldn't mind looking at, with me at some of those things that mean so much to us in light of the second coming of Jesus. I have a very small list, a very short list, and I've not ranked these in order of importance. But I wonder if tonight we can celebrate the fact that Jesus is coming back soon. I wonder if we can rekindle the fire that burns or burned within us. It says Jesus is coming back soon. I wonder if we can remind ourselves of the blessed hope Jesus is coming back soon. And I wonder if we can consider tonight that the return of Jesus ought to thrill us. Because if we know God as we ought to know Him... We should be looking forward to the return of Jesus with nothing but absolute confidence. You need to be able to say tonight, when Jesus comes back, I am going home. When the saints go marching in, oh, how I hope to be in that number. That would be a terrible song to sing. Friends, when Jesus comes back, He's coming back for you, and you ought to know it. So let's consider the second coming of Jesus Christ. I believe tonight that the second coming of Christ encourages us. Think this through with me for a moment. It is then that the theory of faith becomes absolute reality, and that gets us through. It ought to get us through. Consider what Paul wrote. Turn with me in your Bible or on your device to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll begin in about verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and, and this is a book written by somebody who knew something about the hope of the return of Jesus. He wrote about it again and again. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll pick it up in verse 
14, Paul writes a fascinating few words. Knowing, Paul writes, that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. And that takes place when? At the second coming of Jesus. Verse 15. For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. He goes on to say, For which cause we do not faint, but though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed, what? Day by day. Now look at this. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are what, would you tell me? Eternal. Now listen, we both know this from bitter experience. The temporal, that can be difficult. Seems like every day we get another report of a, a poor saint of God passing away. We hear every day of another calamity, another tsunami, another earthquake, uh, another episode of, of, of violent crime or terrorism or some such thing. We hear about friends and family members who are ailing, who are sick. I called a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine. Hey, I hear you're having a tangle with cancer. I know you just got uh, operated on. How are things going? And then he gave me the news. It was a whole lot worse than he or anybody else had dared to anticipate. Man, what keeps you going? He encouraged me. John, my faith is strong. I know that one day we are going to see Jesus as long as my life is in his hands. He's introduced me to a whole new group of people to witness to. I would never have been able to meet these doctors and these nurses. Man, it's as though he had ordered the thing and he was glad when it arrived. Nothing was taking the wind out of his sails. Because his hope isn't in the temporal, it's in the eternal. Now, listen, before I go any further, I don't want you to think that should you get some terrible diagnosis or should a calamity approach you or something terrible take place in your life, I'm not saying you need to welcome it like you'd welcome a, a, a beautiful sunrise. Bad things are called bad things because they're bad. But bad things, even if they come close to you, don't suddenly make God bad. A few days ago, I met a young guy. I canvassed with this guy when he was a kid, when I was less of a kid, but he was a real kid. How you doing? I'm doing all right. What church do you go to? Well, I go to church. What do you mean you don't go to church? How's your family? Well, then he told me without getting into the details that his family had gone through a, a real tragedy. An utter calamity. I said, uh, so did you and God have some, uh, some discussions about that? Yes, we did. I imagine you were mad with God. Yes, I am. Haven't been in church in five years. I said, there's a reason you're here tonight. And that's so that I could talk to you and tell you that God is good. Even though bad things happen, God is good. Even though something disastrous has happened in your family... Jesus is coming back. One day he will make all things new. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is always 
that the best is yet to come. Jesus' return is just ahead. He's coming back, and our hearts can be gladdened by that. One day Christ returns, and there will be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any pain, because the former things are passed away. And we are not looking at the things which are temporal. We are looking at the things which are eternal. And thank God for that. See what Paul wrote. Our light affliction, which is but for how long? A moment. He's not making light of your affliction. He is simply saying, in view of eternity, you know that life is short, short. James wrote, your life is a vapor. It appears for a moment and then it vanishes away. We are here and then we are gone, but thank God we're coming back because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We have hope tonight. Listen, in the light of the return of Jesus, I believe that we can let the the big things be big and the small things be small. I met a, a, a couple at an evangelistic series. I said, what church do you go to? Oh, we don't go to church. And I thought you were church members. We are. You were church members, and you don't go to church. Uh, you have to explain that to me. They said, well, you know, we used to go to church, but the people at church were mean. And we just decided we were not going to put up with that any longer, and so we just stay home every week. How long have you been doing that? Several years. I said, well, the devil loves people like you. And they said, uh, what do you mean by that? I said, so let me ask you, uh, are, are you, you, are you drinkers? You get you involved in alcohol? No, no, no. I could tell. Are you, are, are you drug users? You're using drugs. Well, no, of course not. Uh, adultery? Are either of you running around? You got boyfriends and girlfriends? No. I said, no, I didn't think so. It's people like you that the devil loves. They looked at me again. I said, you make his job easy. He couldn't get you involved in a life of sin, so he just made sure that the church grump sat down to you a few weeks, uh, sat down next to you a few weeks in a row, and, and, and he got you out of church that way. I said, there are grumpy people everywhere. He was going to get you sooner or later. You make the devil's job easy. I saw them a few days later. Hey, how you guys doing? Good, good. Pastor, we were in church last Sabbath. Let me digress for a moment. I'm going to editorialize. You can call it preaching if you want. It's editorializing, sort of. Ladies and gentlemen, go to church. Go to church. Here I was. Listen, here I was arriving in my, my, my no, leaving the church, my church office one day, and a man came in. He was walking, and I didn't recognize him. He said, hello, Pastor John, Pastor Bradshaw, something or other. I said, do I know you? He said, no, no. I'm one of your long-lost church members. I said, why is that? He said, I don't come to church. I just stay home and watch on TV. Our church service was broadcast live on television, which is a mistake. I'd have given it to them two weeks delayed. If you want today's sermon, come to church. <laughs> well, that's how they did it, you know. I said, wait a minute. You don't come to church? No. I said, are you sick? No. No. 
you have a new car. Your car's not broken down. No. I said, are you dead? He said, no, I'm not dead. I said, then why don't you come to church? Uh, now he started to get a little, oh, like a deer in the headlights. I said, that's not biblical. The church is a body. You have amputated yourself. Man, you need to be back in church. He was expecting Pastor Bradshaw to hug him and stroke him and hug him. and uh, said, No, I'm not doing that. Come to church. I'll hug you then. <laughs> staying away? What in the world? Who are you blessing by staying away? Friend, you know, there were times that Christians used to meet together risking their lives to come together and worship together. And we sit at home and go, oh, I don't go to church if it's not warmer than about 50 degrees. What in the world's got into you? Now, if you are elderly, you have trouble getting around, arthritis, back pain, I understand it. I get it. You are exclu you're excused. It's all right. <laughs> Ego te absolvo. But otherwise, you need to have a good excuse. To have you not read Hebrews in verse uh, 10 and verse 25? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It's too far to church. How far? Uh, 50 miles. What? You'd be there in less than an hour. You could walk it if you had to. Stand away from church. And then there are the parasites. Uh, I don't know. That's, that's an unfortunate word to use. So I'll. I'll then there are the. Uh, no, that's a good word. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Then there are the parasites that come along and they speak to you and they try to drag you away from the church. They tell you how bad the church is. The music. Have you seen how bad the music is? Now listen, I like good music. And I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, you know, junk music in church. Maybe that's got to keep you away. I would say, I would say take earplugs or something. I don't know. So go to another church. Don't stay away. Oh, don't you know what they're doing at the general conference? Oh, my brother. You've got to get over that. Oh, don't you know what the conference president said? Which conference? Oh, it's the conference president in Zimbabwe or something. Who said this? And that's evidence that the church is going to hell. Ladies and gentlemen, the church is God's church. It is not mine. It is not yours. It is God's. And as long as there's one open on Sabbath morning, it is your privilege to be able to be there. Make it better. Pray for it. Support it. Get involved. Go to church. What did he preach about last night? I don't know. But he said I should go to church. Amen. Unkind people. Forget the unkind people. Go be a kind person. Uh, kill that un unkind person with kindness. Be nice. Make a difference in that person's life. That's small stuff. The faithfulness of God. Big stuff. Jesus is coming back. God is faithful. Major in that. God is faithful. 
You're having financial losses, missed financial opportunities, small stuff. You're not going to miss that money in heaven. Don't worry. Don't let it drag you down. Don't let it consume your life. Knowing Jesus as your personal friend, ah, that's big stuff. That's really big stuff. If you know Jesus, you know everything. I was at 4th of July last year at a friend's house, and there was a lady there I'd never met before, and she just, uh, just sucked all the oxygen out of the room when she said, Neil Armstrong was a close personal friend of ours. Oh, whew. I mean, what in the world? How do you, I mean, it's, it's not a contest, but how do you even compete with that? I mean, you, what do you even say back? The queen waved at me once as she drove down the road. That was good. It was, it was a real connection. I was about eight years old. All us kids from school lined up on the main road because the queen's motorcade was going to come. She got held up. We waited and waited and waited. And finally, ah, we went back in. And it was lunchtime. And I went home for lunch. Imagine that. That was the olden days, wasn't it? I went home for lunch. And as I was walking down the very short walk to my, uh, to my home, I turned around. And here came these black limousines. And I looked and... and I, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth. But I don't think I could say she was a close personal friend. I told a friend of mine, a guy who hasn't been in a church for about 42 years. I said to this guy, this woman knew Neil Armstrong, close personal friend. He looked at me, he said, does knowing Jesus count? I hope she's there this 4th of July. I heard you know Neil Armstrong. Let me tell you about my friend Jesus. Yeah. Knowing Jesus, big stuff. Jesus is coming back soon. What are you focusing on? What are you letting drag you down or build you up? The devil knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your history. He knows what you're prone to. He knows what gets you up and he knows what gets you down. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus needs to be our primary focus. The word of God. Read the book. Read it. Chew on it, listen to it, memorize it, meditate upon it, believe it, get it in. You get the Word of God and you're going to be a whole new creation. Jesus is coming back soon. We got to be focusing on what we got to be focusing on, which means point number two, the second coming of Jesus adds impetus to our mission. Isn't that right? Sure, Jesus is coming back soon. The population of the world is somewhere around 7.7 billion. 7.7 billion. How many people are there in the state of Michigan? Do you know? Give me a moment. Michigan population. 9,922,576. That was in 2015. Let's call, it, let's call it 10 million people in Michigan. Can we do that? 10 million. How many people in Michigan in church on any given Sabbath? Whatever that number is, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the population of Michigan. Now, I understand Jesus said, other sheep I have who are not of this fold. I understand that. I understand one day the message will be heard, come out of her who? All right. So we, know, we don't want to pretend that we are exclusive. We don't. We don't have a soul rights to the kingdom of heaven. Nobody is pretending that. 
But we have something that the world needs. It's the three angels' messages. I want you to look around your state and ask yourself how many people have that. Compared to the 10 million people who live in Michigan, not very many. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is coming back when? Okay, which means then that the three angels' messages must go to every last person in the Michigan Conference territory sooner. And what is it we're focusing on? Huh? What is it that's chewing up our time? Don't have time to read my Bible, but i got time to social media all night long. You're binge-watching programs on Netflix, and if I said Obadiah, you wouldn't even know there was a book in the Bible called Obadiah. What's going on with some of us? You know what I'm saying? Question is, where are our priorities? What is the priority? What's the priority in the church? We seem to be able to invent things for the sole purpose of distracting ourselves. We can take questions that may even be important questions and let those questions dominate everything. No, 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 no. Let's keep things in their place. Prime place is Christ. He's coming back soon, and so therefore we must be about our Father's business. Come on and say amen. amen. Evangelism, however you define it, public evangelism, personal evangelism, all kind of creative methods of evangelism, evangelism has to be our focus. The church is growing. Praise the Lord for that. Not nearly as fast as the population is growing. I heard a week ago that the Southern Baptist Convention says that if they were going to keep pace with population growth, they would have to plant a thousand churches. Uh, ah, there you go. Wind just went out of myself. I think it was a week. Might have been a year. Uh, now, because I don't know, I knew a week ago <laughs> that would have to plant a lot of churches. <laughs> really, really a lot. So while we waste time, while we fritter time away with things that are just not important, the question is, what are we doing to win a soul? What are we doing to reach people for Christ? What are we doing to support the evangelistic outreach of the church we, whatever we're doing, we'll be doing more. No question about it. Ought to be doing more. The Pew Research people say that when it comes to people in their 20s, millennials, a massive amount of them, listen to this, 50% of younger millennials either don't know if they believe in God or they don't believe in God, one or the other. One out of two people in their 20s in the United States either don't believe in God or don't know if they believe in God. And I don't know how you don't know that you believe in God. The mission field is a mission field. We just conducted an evangelistic series in Beirut, Lebanon. I'll tell you more about that as the week goes by. I tell you, there are some parts of the world, whew, precious few Christians at all. And that's important. It's important we do something about that. But don't think you've got to go to Timbuktu in order to win a soul. There are lost people on your street. They're in your community. They're where you get your hair cut. They're where you shop. They're where you take your car to get an oil change. They are everywhere. The return of Jesus must add impetus to our mission. We have been called, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The reason the church exists is to reach people who don't know Christ. 
We are not here to consult our ease. We are not here to generate or accumulate more stuff. Our primary goal while we are, all, are on this earth is to reach the lost with the gospel of Christ. Watch that good news. The sinless one died for us sinners. Jesus bore our burdens. He takes away our sins. He removes our guilt. He gives us hope. There was a cross erected at Calvary. Jesus was nailed to that cross. On that cross, the Savior gave his life so we might live eternally. Maybe you have to have once been really lost to truly appreciate it. I don't think so. But if you've ever been good and lost and looked in the mirror and said to yourself, like this, I'm going to hell, then you might have had that epiphany once that said, I need Jesus more than I need anything else in the world. Jesus died, rose from the dead, went to heaven where he intercedes at the right hand of God. This is the good news we can tell anyone. Sinner, there is hope for you. God will give you a new start. God will give you a new heart, even the baddest of the bad. If God could save Manasseh, if God could save Solomon when he was in over his head in immorality and sin, then God can save your family member, your neighbor, your child, your parent, your colleague. Jesus came into the world to seek and save that which was lost. This is profoundly good news. One day this old world and all of its attendant misery and problems will be gone. All things passed away. All things will become new. Jesus is coming back. Would you say amen? And let me say something to you. Do we want unity in the church? Yes or no? Oh, yeah, we want it. We need it. I tell you what, we'll never have unity in the church while there are people sitting around in the church like bumps on a log doing nothing to share Jesus with anybody else. Now, I'm not saying that you need to be an evangelist in the, in the professional evangelist sense. Or you need to know as much as the Bible instructor who works alongside your congregation. But man, can you imagine if everybody did something? I, I heard that quote before. If everybody gave out in this, in this territory, somewhere between one and three glow tracks a day, that's 100,000 a day we could get out. Can you imagine that? Imagine in a week. That's, that's 700,000 in a week. That's 3 million in a month. That's 36 million in a year. If we did something easy, easy, before long you'd be given a tract. I've got this one, thanks. People would be trading them. I have the one about death. I'll give you two death for a Sabbath, and I can make up the complete set. Strangers would be doing this. A wise pastor once told me that a pulling horse does not kick. You show me a church that's kicking, and I will show you a church that's pulling. A church where there is no unity is the same church as the church where there is no focus on mission and evangelism. When we get busy doing mission, when we love the lost, when we love each other, when we get beside each other and work, oh man, there'll be unity, all right? Let's not wait for the time of trouble to experience unity. How about we get on with the job God gave us to get on with? And we remember tonight, the return of Jesus represents the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecies of the Bible. Everything we believe in as Christians adds up to the return of Jesus. Let's think about this. Time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. Fulfilled when Jesus comes back. Mark of the beast issue. Resolved when Jesus comes back. 
Armageddon and the seven last plagues fulfilled with the return of Jesus Christ. United States' role in Bible prophecy will have been discharged. Latter rain will have fallen. The challenges that come to the church will have come and gone, which suggests that if the second coming of Jesus is going to happen soon, then exciting things are going to happen sooner. Think about what we teach. Death, well, that'll all come to an end when Jesus comes back. 2,300-day-year prophecy. Resolved, fulfilled, uh, all done when Jesus comes back because judgment will have ended. Without the return of Jesus, prophecies are information. When Jesus comes back, we will experience ultimate transformation because of glorification. Thank God. Now let's think about this. Be remiss of us not to consider the second coming of Jesus through this lens. The return of Jesus speaks to us about the need for personal preparation. We're going to turn in our Bibles to Titus chapter 2. And when we get to Titus chapter 2, we will start in a predictable place. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. Ladies and gentlemen, we believe this. We were taught this. We paint it on the signs out in front of our churches. Jesus is coming back soon. We believe in the imminent advent of Jesus. And Paul wrote to Titus and he said, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, or to all, teaching us, now listen, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ladies and gentlemen, sin has got to go. We ought to have a zero-tolerance policy for it. And I don't just mean bad sin. I'm talking about all the sins. They all got to go. Now, here's the problem. We know that. We know that intellectually. Well, I shouldn't tell you this. So I will. Less than a year ago, I got in a conversation with a fellow. He said, here's my book. I wrote this book. I said, oh, great, man. He said, I'm giving you this book. Well, thank you. I opened it up, and I started flipping through the chapters. And uh, I, this one chapter, just, it just caught my eye. I didn't understand what it, what, what it could have been about. I said, What's this chapter about? He said, oh, it's in that chapter that I take on uh, a certain theologian. I said, oh, that's interesting. What did he teach? Well, he said that you have to be perfect. I said, oh, okay. What did he mean by that? He said, well, he taught that you had to be sinless. Well, what does that even mean? I said, what did he mean by that? He said, well... He said that you have to stop sinning. And I said, I kind of thought that was the whole idea. And he said, oh, no. <laughs> I said, oh, no. I said, when I became a Christian, I gave up doing this and this and this and this and this. I said, which one of these five sins should I not have quit? I said, just tell me, which one? Because maybe 
if I shouldn't acquit it, if it's something I enjoyed, I might just take it back up again. So which one? He thought, and then he said, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. I said, no, no, I know that. Let's leave that for a moment. That's not the question I asked. I'm asking you which sin I shouldn't, I shouldn't have stopped doing because evidently stopping sinning is not what we should be doing out here. He said, all our righteousnesses. I said, no, 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 you're pivoting. I'm not going to let you off the hook. With that, he started to get a little bit aggressive with me. And, uh, and I said, okay, let's just make it really simple. The thief, when he comes to Jesus and has faith in Jesus, he ought to stop stealing, right? He said, oh, no. I said, what do you mean? He said, he cannot stop stealing. I said, I know what's in and of himself. In, in, in yourself, no one can stop anything. But, but Jesus is able to give this man the victory of a theft, right? He said, oh, no. I said, oh, no. I said, your devil is more powerful than your God. That's no place to be. And he said something else. And, uh, oh, and then he said, the thief will want to stop thieving, but he won't be able to. I said, you're putting us right in Romans 7. That's where Paul said, I want to not do stuff, and I find myself doing it. He described himself, oh, wretched man that I am. He said, uh, will you read that book? I said, no, probably not. <laughs> you might as well take that and burn it. What was really interesting is that he was a pastor. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to be careful how you express this. Because if you believe it wrong, it makes you miserable. But here's my question. Is Jesus able to live in you in such a way that you have a distaste for sin and a taste for righteousness? He can't live in you any other way. When we look for that blessed hope, we are wanting to become more and more like Jesus. Now, now this is where I've got to just, just kind of double back around. I don't want you to think that you're going to leave this place tonight and never make another mistake. You know, even Roger Federer occasionally serves a fault. You know? It's because, well, it's because he's a human being and no one can only serve. In a t that's tennis. It's an imperfect in illustration, but you get it. Friend, the important thing is you keep your eyes on Jesus and you grow. You deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Your purpose in your heart to let Jesus have your life and grow you and change you and transform you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are what? Passed away. All things have become what? New. But listen, we are to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Denying sin. The old man is to be put to death, the Bible says. So we walk in newness of life. Our eyes are on Jesus. More of Christ Less of ourselves. Sanctification is the work of a what? Lifetime. So you're going to be growing and growing and growing until Jesus returns. In Christ, you are going to be growing. Friend, Jesus is more powerful than sin. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you believe there is a sin more powerful than, than you can get rid of out of your life, uh, 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 we could deconstruct that sentence. It was grammatically terrible. If you believe there is a sin so powerful you could never get it out of your life, you are right. If you believe there is a sin so powerful Jesus can't get it out of your life, 
You are wrong. Greater is he that is in you than he, not he, than he that is in the world. If you don't have a Savior who's powerful enough to straighten you up when you are crooked, then you don't have a Savior at all. What can wash away my sin? Nothing. According to some people, nothing. According to the Bible, the blood of Jesus. Thank God Jesus died to make me new. I am not damned to be tomorrow what I used to be yesterday. Jesus can grow me and restore in me his own character. Thank the Lord for that. Don't sell yourself short. Don't you sell the gospel short. Don't you sell the Holy Spirit short. When Christ comes into your life, he changes you. We have a tendency. Oh, that's Mr. Brown. Oh, he's a grumpy old fella, but he's okay. Oh, that's Mrs. Smith. She's been a deacon here forever. She's a gossip. Don't say anything you want her to hear, but she's a darling, really. No, she's not. She's a sinner, and so is he. And they need to go to Jesus and say, change me so that I'm not a gossip. Change me so that I'm not a grump. And when they grump again, go back to Jesus and say, that's not good enough, Jesus. Do a greater work. Do a deeper work. We must be dissatisfied with the presence of sin in our life and dissatisfied with the lack of Christ. We need more of Jesus, more of his spirit, more of Christ, more of the presence of God, more of his righteousness. Wonderful story in, the, in, in a book uh, called The Bible of Jesus going into the temple one day. And did you ever wonder? They all ran. They, 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 they bolted from the temple. Didn't you ever wonder about that? It's a little surprising. Jesus went in there and he fashioned a little whip of some kind. And he walked up to the money changer's table, boom, turned them over. Get these things hence. And the people ran. Where I grew up, if you walked into a little gambling den and turned over the tables and said, hey, bros, get these things hence. Best thing you could do is run. <laughs> Why didn't somebody punch Jesus right in the face? Because he was God in the flesh. That's not a satisfactory answer, but, I, you know, I get it, but no. I mean, yes, but no. Because he was angry. No, 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 no. They were angry. Because he had a whip. No. If you've never read The Desire of Ages, you need to read it. If you haven't read it in a while, read it again. You read the chapter dealing with this, and the author tells you that the people in the temple fled. Listen, they fled from the condemnation of his presence. From the condemnation of his presence. They, they, they evacuated the temple because of his presence. Now, if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and it is, if your body's the temple and Jesus comes into the temple, what must happen to the sin? Has to flee. Got to flee. It's got to flee. When Jesus is there and is enthroned in your heart, the sin must flee. And it must flee. Jesus is coming back soon. We want to hold on to him with everything we have and say to Jesus, change my heart. 
make me new. Listen, you're not going to get discouraged. You're just going to say, Lord, I'm determined. You have to do a work in me. The challenge we have is when we try to change ourselves. Try to change ourselves. Don't start from the outside and work in. Don't think, if I only overcome this, then I can go to heaven. No, 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 no. You've got to overcome a lot more than this very evidently. Your thinking must be, if Jesus will take this out, when Jesus comes in, Jesus, I surrender it. Holy Spirit, change my heart. Now you're on the right track. Don't start from the outside. Start from the inside. Jesus, come into my life and change me. And don't stop changing me until you look in my face and see yourself. He's coming back, and we've got to be ready. This is why the Bible says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Don't have your focus in the wrong place. Focus on Christ. If you look within, you will be discouraged. You'll see all the wrong stuff. But look up and see Jesus interceding for you at the right hand of his heavenly Father. He loves you. He died to save you. He wants to change your heart. You cannot be so sinful that there's no hope for you. If God could save Manasseh, he can save you. There's no doubt about it. If he could save Newton, the ugly old slave traitor, and move in his heart so that he could write the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, then he can save you and put a new song in your heart. God can do it. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he is coming back for the saints which keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Do we believe it tonight? The only thing that's going to prevent us from being ready for the second coming of Jesus is our own unwillingness to be ready. That's all. Jesus spoke to a bunch of scoundrels in John chapter 5, and he said, you are not willing to come to me that you might have life. He didn't say your sin is going to keep you. He said what's keeping you is your unwillingness to come to me. Because when you come to Jesus, he'll take away your sin. He will give you a new heart. He will live in you, dwell in you, grow you. That's what he does. It's time for us to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, take me, make me yours. Jesus, transform me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, change me every day. Like we mean it. Taking time with God. Taking time in the Word. Taking time to pray, Lord, will you grow me? Will you make me your own? He will. And there'll never be a time that Jesus says to you, no thanks. He's coming back soon. Our privilege is to be ready. Our privilege is to go. Our privilege is to experience weightlessness. Gravity is no longer going to hold you on this earth. We are going up. I was in Guatemala recently. We were filming for It Is Written, and we had a mission group going there shortly after our visit. It was three weeks after Volcan, Volcan del Fuego erupted, wiped out a town, wiped out a bunch of people. Three weeks after that volcano, the ground was still warm. You pulled a stone out of the ground, the underside of the stone was still hot. What happened was the volcano erupted. It wasn't, didn't throw stuff up like this into the air. It sort of belched out this pyroclastic flow. Rock and ash and superheated gas, it just flowed down the mountain and swallowed up the place. We went there to film standing on this, looked like the surface of the moon. Over there, there was heavy equipment digging down to the road from the top of the ash to the road was about 25 feet. That was a lot of stuff. 
We were there filming, you know, and there was a top of a house sticking up out of the ground and a roof over there. Other than that, I didn't really see anything. Just this oddball surface. Later, we were interviewing survivors, and one man just sort of mentioned there were 15,000 people in that town. Afterwards, I asked the translator, did he mean 1,500? Did he mean 1,500, not 15,000? She said, well, in Espanol, 1,000 and 100 are very different. Don't think he made a mistake. Then somebody said there were 13,000 or so people living in that town. I couldn't believe it. So I went to the, where I was staying, and I uh, Googled San Miguel Los Lotes before and after. Before it was a little city. After, surface of the moon. The whole place had been swallowed up. The government said a couple of hundred people died. The people said about 1,500 or 2,000 people died. The reason for the disparity is because the people who ordinarily would have reported other people missing were missing. About 2,000 people died. And that's when we spoke to Rosa. Rosa volunteered with the government's emergency warning system. It was her role to go around the town telling people to go. I'm here. The government has sent me. The volcano is erupting. Go, go, go. And as she spoke, tears started trickling down her face. She said, I would go into one home and say, you've got to go. But they would say to me, we're just going to lock the door and wait it out. House after house after house, the warning came and they decided not to move. Somebody ran into a church, a church filled with worshipers. Please get out. The volcano was coming. They said, we're going to pray. We're going to pray that God will help us. Ignoring the fact that God was helping them. That church is still full of worshipers. Worshipers and ash and rock. Where we were standing, the church was just about over there but about 15 feet below the surface of the ground as it now was. Can you imagine people seeing danger but not moving when the danger came? Not preparing to save themselves. That's what's going on in the world and tragically to some extent in the church. This isn't a game. This is real. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for those who've made room for him in their heart. For those who've said, not my will, but your will be done. He's coming back for those who have said, all right, let's do it your way. It's that easy. It's that simple. He's coming back for people who have said, if you died for me, I'm prepared to live for you. Even though, even though right now I might have a hard heart, change my heart and make me new. Listen, friend, if Jesus were to come back, where would you find yourself? On high ground or stuck in one of those houses as Ash and rock and who knows what else comes sweeping by and through. Looking for that blessed hope. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly. No, God's not asking you to do what you can't do and be what you can't be. But he is asking you to let Jesus do what you can't do and be in your life what you can't be. He's asking for permission to change your life and give you hope, the second coming of Jesus. It's the blessed hope. 
it's the best news you've ever known of. Jesus is coming back. We get to go home. We get to go home and be at home forever and ever and ever. Life is just so short. Without the return of Jesus, this would be a cruel joke. You've barely started living and you start dying. But Jesus says, I've got a better plan. It's called eternity. And he offers it to you tonight and to me, and he wonders if we would take it from his hand, take it from his heart. Would you do that tonight? Would you say to Jesus, I want that. I want eternity. Even if you can look within yourself and say, I'm a hard-hearted, no-good wretch of a human being, that's okay. Tell that to Jesus and ask him to give you a new heart, and he will. It's what he majors in. It's what he does. It's what he does. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. We've got to pray tonight. Jesus is coming back soon. We must be ready. How do, you, how do you become ready? By taking hold of Jesus. And when you take hold of him, his righteousness becomes your own. And in taking hold of him, you surrender to him. You say, take my heart and keep on working till it's all yours, all yours, all yours. Can we pray that prayer tonight? Let's pray. Father in heaven, all yours, all yours. We want to be all yours. And you've got to work with us, Lord. Thank you. Thank you, the Bible says, that the long-suffering of our God is salvation. Thank you for your patience. Anybody else would have become so impatient with us so long ago, we wouldn't have any hope. Tonight, we thank you for the wonderful hope, the blessed hope. We thank you for no more sin and sickness. We thank you that all of our hopes will be realized. We thank you that we'll be new, all new, yours, all yours. Oh, Father, would you come into our hearts like never before, forgive us, cleanse us, prepare us, and keep on preparing us. Give us a dissatisfaction for anything less than a heart filled with your presence. Tonight, we choose Jesus. We ask for grace to turn in your direction and to stay in your direction. And we pray that you would do in us what we could never do in ourselves. Don't let us become so enamored with the things of the world that Jesus becomes smaller instead of bigger. May we decrease and your son Jesus increase. We accept from you tonight the gift of salvation. We believe that we have it. Thank you, Lord, that you would never let us go. Continue to grow us for your kingdom. Ready us entirely for the return of Jesus Christ. We thank you tonight, and we pray, looking forward to the blessed hope. In Jesus' name we pray, please say, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.